Hello, this is Daniel Vayant, and welcome to Behind the Story. Before I talk about my latest episode of Behind the Story, where I talk about Survivor Series 1997, I want to talk about... Um, I want to talk about something that I was just talking to, talking about with my mom. I believe Russell Lamia on YouTube is the one that does a list of things. And I just saw one of those lists and it made me think, that's something I should do for my podcast. So that's what I'll do. The video I recently saw on YouTube was a list of stars that changed their finishers. And the finisher that, um, the one fact that this guy pointed out at first was that there's there's always going to be different reasons why each person changes their finisher and one reason is that it may not fit the storyline or character they have or this is what I'm adding or it's Actually, I'll at two, three different points. I'll t- I'll make three different points about this. Second reason is that that he gave was that it could be because the finisher may be a danger to the opponents, so I want to make sure that they're able to work the next day. So you change it in that respect, or it's because it could be the same finisher. As somebody else, so they ask you to change it so that people don't confuse you with somebody else. So it's not only, not only is it a, a sometimes, not only is it a favor to the person you're, you took the move from, it's also a favor to you because people can, people know you and the other person's finishers and you can tell the difference. You can tell y'all apart, and y'all won't have to compare the 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 moves. Now, one maneuver you can't help. There's one maneuver you can't help but compare it to somebody else, and that is the submission holds. That's because submission holds are very difficult to think of doing. Like the Indian Deathlock. For today's day and age, you might want to call that the Native American Deathlock. I don't know. But being that I like to use the original names, I'll just call it the Indian Deathlock. Some people use that. But because it because it was one of their favorite maneuvers and they think of and they think it it's fitting to the match, but they don't use it as a finisher. So the first person that I think of in that list is Triple H. 
they mentioned how Triple H used the diamond cutter first in WWF before he was switched to the pedigree. Well, what some people may not know, and the person doing this list may have not known this, he actually used the pedigree in WCW when he was Paul Levesque, or Jean-Paul Levesque. He used the pedigree in WCW. Don't really know if they gave it a name or not, because it may have been just one of those rare moments when he won a match. And the person that was helped that helped him out a lot in those days was Terry Taylor. And Terry Taylor said on a WWE Network's short lived series Top Ten in the top ten list of the finishers in the in the history of the WWE they listed Triple H's finisher, the pedigree, and Terry Taylor said that when Paul Levesque or Triple H was starting out, he came up with this idea himself that became the pedigree. And that was that if you want to stand out as a finisher, you want to take a maneuver where you set it up like it's a pile driver, but instead of it being a pile driver, and the way he set it up for Triple H was exactly what the pedigree became. You pick your opponent's arms up not to hurt them, and then you pick them up and you slam them. And I thought, the way he set it up was perfect. No wonder it worked. <clears throat> and um, a lot of people, uh, not a lot of people, one person mentioned how his first use of the diamond cutter was awkward, but when you see the rustling for what it is, <clears throat> the way he hit it was not bad. It was the cell that was bad. So that's how you know that not everybody who is trained, not everybody who goes through the full training is made for the entering part. Because compared to the pedigree or... Um, the DDT or the um, Scorpion Death Drop or any move like that. The Diamond Cutter, which is also the RKO, is um, is actually one of the most safe, one of the safest moves you can use. Okay, so. When you look at that, you can see how you really sometimes people do, it's not to criticize anybody, but I see how some people, they like to compare too much or they like to place blame on one person when it's, this business is literally a two-way street. Some people either are not careful or some people don't uh, don't sell the right way. But you cannot give pull, pull blame on one person. Like uh, when Bob Holly injured his neck, 
he himself said that was not Brock Lesnar's fault. It was just an accident. So, you not always place blame on one person. And so, I'll give until, um... That's just how... I just want to end it with that, saying that... I think that sometimes places... Blame is placed too easy instead of looking at two sides. Now, there are some other maneuvers that I'm not really quite sure about. Um, like I had seen this earlier on YouTube, but I can't seem to find it right here. Hmm. I mean, I just watched it. No, not the full thing either. So, I don't know. Hmm. I know that, um... I know that Rosalamia would be the um probably the right thing to look at because I know that that I know that person who did that uh, ten times people had to people had to. Change the finishers. Hmm. So I, this has got to be the right reason. Top ten stars who changed their uh, finishers. Focus so much on uh, focus so much on talking about um the how it's a two way street and everything is, but actually I forgot the second person that was mentioned. Now I um. 
Santa Nuno. That I saw that on YouTube. Ten finishers, that's what it is. <clears throat> I know that there's a lot of, uh, I know there's a lot of different finishers, and I just, when I couldn't really think of who else they listed. I started talking about something I felt was important. I, I just started talking from my heart. And now, um, I don't mean to say what people, sh um, I mean to say do this, this, or that. However, what I do mean to say is what I think, and I, because we can all be wrong without even realizing it, then I'll just say this is what I believe we should do, but I don't think it's I don't think I should say it like it's a fact because we're all, we all have different opinions and we have different perceptions. So to be honest, this is what I think we should do. Not necessarily what Not necessarily what actually we do. Um, give me an example. <clears throat> it's my opinion that we spend too much time being critical instead of uh, constructive. So I believe we should be more constructive with what we say. <clears throat> So, constructively speaking, on one hand, we either talking, okay, I'll give an example of what I'm talking about. Now, I don't know what happened to Mandy Rose in a house show against Nia Jax, but in most of the videos I've seen of Nia Jax hurting people, a lot of those videos it was not hurt it was the way the person positioned themselves to land that was the problem so constructively speaking i do think it i do think that people are too harsh about naya jacks hurting people when it's obvious she's she's not reckless like for instance not caring if she hurts you or not. I don't think 
She has a lack of care. Because um, I never hear or read any one person in their business. The person is actually getting slammed by Nia Jax. Like Alana or like um, Charlotte Flair or like Sasha Banks. You know, people who I think and know I've been in the ring with her. I don't hear them say anything, so I don't think it's warranted to criticize her because <clears throat> she may not have been solely responsible for those for those moments. So let me just stop right there, because if I continue, it may sound like I'm telling people what to say and I'm not saying what to say I'm suggesting how to look at things so the actual list right here start didn't start off with Triple H it started off with Seth Rollins Seth Rollins went from the uh, curb stomp to um three different finishers it says right here <clears throat> we know anybody who read the um, internet knows that he went from the curb stomp to uh, some type of a DDT and then he went with Rip Courtney which is like um which is like the rainmaker's finisher only instead of going for a clothesline it's high knee to the face <clears throat> and then finally when he was with triple h and uh and finally because this was in the middle of him being with triple h and the authority when this when they banned the curb stomp, he uh, he ended up going for Triple H's maneuver, and then when he he even hit Triple H's maneuver on Triple H to beat him at WrestleMania. But after that was over, they didn't know what else to do, so they went back to the finisher. Now, whereas I understand that. It's for the safety of the opponents that they stopped it. But when you see how hard it is to come up with a, with a maneuver that catches your attention. Now, I'd say, well, now I did say that it's better for you to use a different finisher. <clears throat> but on the other side, but on the other side of the scale, as my... My mom's late cousin would say, when you see how the spear was actually not a finisher at first, and the fact that <clears throat> it was always done in the corner, from one corner to the other, when it was used as a finisher, <clears throat> I know that Edge used the spear and Rhino used the spear for Roman Reigns, but Roman Reigns uses not just a spear, he uses a setup move, which is uh, something I don't think people use enough. <clears throat> In order to 
use a maneuver like the spear to finish off an opponent. You have to find a way to use it that's different than the other people. But um, another reason why finishers are sometimes changed is because it may not be that good of a finish. Like, after Seth, Roll after Seth Rollins, Eshawn Michaels, I don't know why they call it this, but a teardrop suplex. It's almost like, um, let me look back at this. Long before Shawn Michaels had become famous for the sweet chin music. Mm. It was, if you would, if you look back at this, before he, before he hits the suplex with it, it almost looks like, he, it almost looks like a very, it almost looks like half of an angle slam. But like they said, it was anticlimactic. It, it didn't show a lot of... Uh, it didn't create a lot of excitement or a lot of impact behind it. So, because he always used the super kick, why not use use a version of it as a finisher? Because super kick is straight, but it's and music. Is, it's just that. It's to the side of the face where the chin is. Now, they use the Miz as the third example and that I don't fully agree with. I thought when I first saw Mizzard of Oz finisher, which was a swinging neck breaker, I did not think that he did it as bad as they said. I thought thought he did it perfectly for somebody who I never who I only saw one or two matches of. And they said by the time he used the, um, by the time he used his finisher that he's using now, was when he grew into, grew into a more capable and a more confident superstar. So that's why he ended up going on to being not just heavyweight champion or WWE champion, but also holding every title you could hold in that company except for the 24-7 title and the cruiserweight title <clears throat> because he's too heavy for the cruiserweight title so every title that is meant for mid-card and heavyweights he won just about every, he won every every title including the tag team titles so showed how well he had developed in his skills by the time he came up with that finisher. Then, then what's amazing about this next person, it's John Cena. What's amazing about his original finisher is he actually used to use that instead of using that as a prelude to his finisher, he used that 
to set up the setup move. It's like it's kind of it's confusing just saying it out loud, let alone thinking it. And then he did used he took a version of that where he spun, spun out and he slammed them. He just spun out, slammed them, and then he went for the setup move. He finishes the match. Well, well, what he did that was different. I even have to play it in order to see the difference. Turn around. He would spin them around, and then. Ended with his arm almost like a clothesline to do a power bomb with it. <clears throat> so even though in OVW it was acceptable, when you're in a big stage like Raw or SmackDown and SmackDown at the time, then you do look like you need something more um, impactful. That's why. That's why the AA move was so, uh, was even more impactful because of how strong he is. And what's interesting is, uh, this was the Attitude Era, so when he used that, he named it, he actually used it before he went against John's, before he went against Brock Lesnar for the heavyweight title on SmackDown, known as the Undisputed title. But, um, the name, because it was the Attitude Era, was terrible. F.U. And I always ask myself, because we didn't, weren't watching it, um, like we watched after he started calling it that, so I had no idea. Why did he call it the FU? And what a lot of people don't may not know is that he didn't he called it FU because of Brock Lesnar's F five, but he was you he used it the first time against Rikishi. So and that was not only his first time doing the match, not a no, that was his second time running a match against him. It was the first time using a finisher, so he kept so he kept it after that. When you have somebody as big and when you have somebody as big as Rikishi, then it makes it even more impactful. So that's why it is such a smart move to use it on him first time. Now we know about Randy Orton using the RKO. Which is a ver which is a version of the diamond cutter. As a matter of fact, first time he used it, it was in the ver it was in the form of a diamond cutter. Finishing moves of all time. He's even tended. Don't 
much WWE know what the RKO is and who executes it. However, there was actually a time when Orton wasn't hitting the RKO out of nowhere. When Orton made his WWE debut in 2002 on the SmackDown brand, Orton would use a move called the Ozone. The move in essence was the same as MVP's Playmaker. Another example of using a finisher that somebody else used before you. To people who have watched Total Nonstop Action Wrestling, which is now called Impact Wrestling, then you know who, who Primetime Elix Skipper is. He was in WCW in at least the last year or two of the company's existence. He used the Playmaker before Randy Orton used it and before MVP called it their Playmaker. So, even though people didn't really pay attention to it as much with Randy Orton or obviously with Elix Skipper, we, now we know why when Randy Orton did it, it didn't really... I don't know why, but with Randy Orton and with... Elix Skipper didn't really. It wasn't that impactful with them. But in, with MVP, it was gold. So it all turns out it's a, who. It's all about the sell of the. It's all about the execution of the move as well as the sell of the move. It would involve Orton bending his opponent over, locking his leg around the wrestler's head, keeping hold of their arm, and then spinning him down to the mat. The move is terrible. In Orton's defense, it has been done by so many WWE superstars over the years, it's never looked good. However, in 2003, Orton would debut the RKO, and the rest is they say is history. Number 6. Kane, a falling powerbomb. Many fans associate the legendary Kane with either the chokeslam or the tombstone piledriver as his finisher. However, there was a period when Kane used a new finishing move, and it actually looked incredible. In 2001, Kane was positioned as a top babyface, and he would need a new finishing move to go alongside the chokeslam, as the tombstone had been semi-retired, albeit moderate uses from The Undertaker. However, even The Undertaker had adopted the last ride to use as an appropriate replacement. Being his half-brother, Kane would begin to use a similar move, the falling powerbomb. The powerbomb was previously in Kane's arsenal, but in 2001, it became his finisher. It would be a much quicker powerbomb than fans would traditionally see, and Kane would fall down with his opponent and then roll into a cover. The move looked... To be honest with you, I can't say that a pile driver is more safe than a powerbomb, but when you see the way Kane and The Undertaker did their uh, pile drivers it was a uh, it did look a little more safer than the way he hit the power bomb on a uh, cane that is then the falling power bomb that did look a little that did look uh, more awkward than usual and i'm not saying that it was because it's for them to know but I can see how it probably made the opponents feel more safe than having to fall, having to fall down with the with Kane because at any moment 
Kane's legs could slip and they could hurt themselves. So, being that his legs are supposed to go down and the fact that he's not pulling them, he's just going down with them, as opposed to a traditional pile driver, I'd say they, I'd say that probably made them feel safer. And because the choke slam was not accepted by this time, it was actually more safe anyway to use the the tombstone pile driver version of a pile driver. Using the choke slam again as his main mm -hmm. finisher after his return from injury in 2002. Number seven, Triple H Diamond Cutter. Well, since they let him use it anyway in 2002, then probably didn't. Whatever reason they gave him to not use the choke slam because the choke slam was not a finish for the Undertaker. And by that time, the choke slam was the Giants' finisher. So unless they didn't want anybody to. To talk about the competition's uh, star, then I don't know why they told him not to use the choke slam. But it was good that he changed to one or the other because still think the falling power bomb might have not been the best finisher to use. When Triple H debuted in the WWE in 1995 after an uneventful stint in WCW, WWE wanted a moveset that would match the Hunter Hearst Helmsley gimmick of being a blue blood. Vince McMahon's idea was that Triple H would use a cutter-style move and call it the Pedigree Pandemonium. The Pedigree Pandemonium. Ooh, that's bad. Now, regardless of the name, the move was notable for being used by Diamond Dallas Page at the same time in WCW and being called the Diamond Cutter. Famously, DDP requested that Triple H pick a different move to use as his finisher, and he obliged out of respect for the future Hall of Famer. Triple H then began to use the pedigree, a move that would make him famous and would win him countless world titles. Interestingly, the cutter move would be used by Triple H's stablemate Randy Orton in the Evolution Stable as of 2003. Orton would get permission to use the move from DDP, and naturally, Orton made it into one of the most popular finishers of all time. Number 8. Yeah, I remember him using that at Survivor Series. But I wonder... I'm actually glad they used this example. Why did he use the rock bottom? Not that it's not a good move, it's a good move, but who gave him that idea? The doubt one of the most popular and successful WWE wrestlers of all time, but it wasn't always this way. The initial presentation of The Rock as Rocky Maivia was one of the most hated babyfaces of all time, and the WWE had to change Rocky's character or he would have been a complete flop. Finisher prior to these two moves he made legendary went very much under the 
the radar. The Rock Bottom wouldn't debut in a match until May 1997, which was seven months after The Rock's initial WWE debut. Prior to that, The Rock would use a basic shoulder breaker, albeit not the worst move in the entire world, it was nothing in comparison to the two moves The Rock would go on to use as his finisher. Number 9, Chris Jericho, Breakdown. Chris Jericho is the perfect example of evolution in wrestling. He constantly evolved his character and his gimmick to keep him relevant and to appeal to the mainstream audience. This also extended to his moveset. Jericho constantly adds new finishing moves such as the Codebreaker or the Judas Effect to match his new personas. One of the moves that many fans forgot that Jericho added as a finisher was a move known as the Breakdown. The Breakdown in essence would be a full Nelson facebuster that looks similar to the Miz's skull-crushing finale. Many fans don't remember Jericho using the move because he used it so infrequently. The move would debut in 2001 when Jericho received a strong push as part of the Invasion storyline. The move was actually responsible for winning Jericho his first world title. Yeah, I always wondered what that was called. I didn't realize it was a finisher. That is a great move to use. But, like they said, it was infrequent, so... That's why when he used the uh, Codebreaker, or Facebuster as they call it today... It was so, so much of a big deal because we used to see them use submission hold only. So the fact that that was an infrequent finisher says a lot about what he can do. In the WWE when he pinned The Rock at the 2001 No Mercy pay-per-view. The move would soon fizzle out and Jericho would revert back to the walls of Jericho and the Lion's Salt. And number 10, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Million Dollar Dream. Long before Stone Cold Steve Austin made this Stone Cold Stunner famous around the world and he became one of the most popular wrestlers of all time, Austin executed another extremely popular finisher that he borrowed from another legend and fellow WWE Hall of Famer. In January 1996, Austin would debut in the WWE using the Ringmaster gimmick and would be banished by the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase. By association, Austin began to use the Million Dollar Dream submission hold as his finisher and it looked extremely effective. However, in the summer of 1996, DBLC would leave the WWE to join WCW to be part of the newly formed NWO. Being Austin would have to drop the gimmick. The Stone Cold character would follow, and the Stone Cold Stunner would be born. Only difference in the original Stunner from the Stunner that we, uh, as fans, probably remember is that when he first did the Stunner, as a show right here in Savio Vega, in this video is that the stunner was a, even though it's more effective with the kick in the sternum than coming down he did the standards by coming down it generically so when he used the kick to do it all the time it was more impactful and they don't mention this a lot but because that move can be dangerous if you don't know what you're doing they said that uh, Michael Hayes taught it to him. And I had a feeling, because it was Michael Hayes who explained the finisher to a cameraman in, in, a, in a documentary on the USA Network about Steve Austin many years ago. So, see what else 
the person from Real Salami has to say. If actually kept the million dollar dream around, I would even use it heavily during his 2001 heel turn. But there you have it guys, 10 abandoned wrestling finishes in WWE. And there are plenty more, so should we do a part 2 on this? Let us know in the comments down below, subscribe if you haven't already, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and I'll see you next time with some more wrestling content. So, anything I have to say, the only thing I have to say uh, is that I'm, I'm glad I did this because since they do so many different lists and so many different videos on YouTube, gives me something to start off with in every episode so thank you to anybody who listens to this and i hope y'all enjoy this as a matter of fact thank you to the 922 thank you to the people who gave my made my um podcast who got my who got my podcast, excuse me, to 922 downloads. Survivor Series 1997. It's not just... Not just a... Event to see people literally survive. And... And traditional matches, elimination matches, but originally it was done on Thanksgiving, and that is my favorite time of the year, Spe specifically because gives us something to do. It gives us something to do. As a family that we may not necessarily do on do on regular, we may be too busy during throughout the year. So when we come together and eat and give thanks for what we have, and a lot of things that we have is just having each other something to be thankful for. So it's one of the best times of the year that I can think of. <laughs> so I'm going to do this by itself because I took so long talking about this. I'll do this by itself. Then I'll record Survivor Series 97 by itself. Thank you and goodbye. Hello, this is Daniel Leon, and this is Behind the Story. This episode <clears throat> is about Survivor Series 1997. For, for over 20 years now, we've been hearing about 
the Montreal blank job. And I call it blank job because I don't like to re because I don't like to repeat that word in any circumstances. In any circumstance I would rather just uh call it I'd rather just call it either an incident or say the word blank. So that's what I didn't really watch I didn't really watch um this the in between segments of the episodes of Raw leading into Survivor Series, but I did read about them in other in other episodes of this and What I have to say is that was so believable because there's so much reality in it. Like the anger that Bret Hart felt toward Shawn Michaels was real, especially when he mentioned. Um, especially when Shawn Michaels mentioned something about WWE female manager Sonny, and he knew what he was suggesting in those days. I knew from his own words, Bret Hart's own words, that it was something he never... He never liked that because he knew it was it was not true and he because it was something that was obviously said by Shawn Michaels out of out of anger, then it makes it even worse. So it makes it wrong. So what I wanted to talk about was just the pay per view itself and uh it makes it difficult to do because I love to listen to the commentary is um makes it difficult to do is talk about it without the commentary on so I like to hear what they say I'm trying to remember the the Godwin men's names. I know one half of the Godwins his name is um Phineas. But I don't know what his cousin's name was. So that I would have to start from the beginning with. Well not the beginning, but I'd have to go back to the first uh elimination of this match. Whenever the, uh, I'm not sure if it was during this or after the Attitude Era, but I rented a video game for the Nintendo 64 ones that had to do with, um, we'll call it Attitude, because it reflected on the era they were in. 
And when I first saw one half of the headbangers, I remember I always wanted to win the, uh, I always wanted in those games to win the, to win the heavyweight title. The problem was that you always had to go through a tournament. So I never got to win the winged, the winged eagle championship because when I would rent those games, I would not, I would not play through it like I would with WCW. So when I, my first memory, the Headbangers was actually playing as one half of them when uh, any time. Somebody would put him in a rear rear chin lock. He would all the voiceover would always be him saying, "I just swallowed my tongue ring," like he was in pain. And so when I see this, I really think I really regret waiting so long to come back and talk about this. Because I missed this, I missed the start of um, the road dog of the midnight, not midnight, but New Age Outlaws forming, and I missed uh, the first look at the the debut match of um, the Headbangers. So, um, so I'm gonna stay on the subject of the uh, year 1997. Actually, I'll go to 1998 to start off the uh, start of January and February, but uh, but I will go back to 1997 and talk about WrestleMania, the road to WrestleMania 13. Or talk about WrestleMania 13 itself um, when March comes next year. So uh, one half the Godwins, um, Henry, I think was his name. Henry Godwin, if that's his name, was wearing. A shirt made out of the uh, the Confederate flag. In those days, it was not believed to be a racist symbol. So, anytime you saw that, you just believed it was a symbol for uh, being a redneck. So that's why it was under it was excusable in those days. There was no political correctness. There was no, uh, there was no situation involving the Confederate flag that made you feel like there was going to be any uproar over it. So if I'm not mistaken about the name, Henry Godwin, if I'm not mistaken, he was the first one eliminated and it came from a, I call it a right hand. I think they called it a slap from uh from Black Jack Bradshaw. No. Black Jack uh Wyndham.
Oh, okay. Well, actually, the first... The first uh, elimination came from Blackjack Bradshaw putting a... An abdominal stretch pin on um, on Henry Godwin. That was the first elimination. That was a good... That was a good maneuver. And the thing is, is that maneuver like that you would think would come from somebody who is um who has who is a catch as catch can specialist he's not so that shows so that's surprising to me that he was that good or good enough to think of a maneuver like that But when you have, when you have friends like the Guerreros, you can, you can pick up on things like that because of all the different moves that they can think of using, or you, all the different moves they can think of using, they could probably teach you a lot. So that's not really a surprise. <laughs> Gets in there. Black Jack Bradshaw, right hand in the gut and in the chin, goes for vertical suplex, cover, two, kick out. But I'm really surprised that goes for gut wrench, suplex, gets it. I think that's what it's called. Two, kick out, left shoulder up. Gut wrench slam, okay. So, what's surprising is that when he hit that suplex, he didn't roll through like he does off the top rope. Yeah. So, it was, so, what was good about this is that he, he knew the importance of wrestling different, because it's a different character in a different show. He gets hit with the clothesline, hooks a leg, two, three. First elimination on the other side is to the blackjacks new blackjacks okay. mosh of the of the I can't believe I forgot their name already mosh of the headbangers is in there goes for an arm bar and he Pulls down on the arm into an arm, into another arm bar, standing up. Phineas forearm into the face bite. That doesn't do it, so he bites him so he can let go. Irish whip. He baseball slides through his legs so he can avoid the right hand. Then a drop kick from Mosh. Drop toe hold. Arm bar. Right back to the arm bar on the same arm. And Mosh is wearing tie-dye knee pads with what looks like tie-dye uh, socks. Jim Ross was saying right here that not only did Mosh go to college and graduated college, but he was a good, pretty good amateur wrestler. And I think Jerry Lawler said, what happened to him? Too many Manso Marilyn Manson videos? 
<laughs> right hand by Phineas. It's out of that wrist lock. And then a forearm over the neck of a... Mosh tags in a Billy Gun. Double Irish whip. Double elbow knocks him down. few stomps then he tells the referee to shut up this is the of course this was in Canada that's why the big controvert that's why it was such a big controversy all right so I'm gonna pause this for a second I gotta go get I gotta go get a coupon two coupons hold on okay I don't usually do this because of the um, <clears throat> because I don't because I don't want to get in I don't want to interrupt the people that are actually talking in the commentary but I like to hear the commentary so I'll just press play That was some, that was some heavy offense by Moss right there. Only thing I don't understand is why, why did Moss feel like he had to choke him? I mean, visibly choking. The referee had to start a five count to break it. He misses this he can't ooh well he got caught that's just as good cover to leg two three god wins our kicking butt right here Thumb into the eye, maybe? Mm. 
Hits him down to his knees with the wrist lock. He starts biting one of his fingers. Ooh, again. <laughs> he starts tapping. Back to that wrist lock, armbar, not hammer lock, excuse me. Roll up, who kick out by Phineas, telling him how close he was to getting eliminated. Lock up. He's getting him in. He's trying to get him into the corner. Side headlock though by Thrasher. Rip. Shoulder block takedown by Thrasher. Runs over the back. Blocks the hip toss. Hip toss to Phineas. Kick by Phineas. Knocks down Thrasher. Kick to. Th kick to Phineas. Come on. <laughs> Negotiate. <laughs> this time he gets Thrasher into the corner. Three, four, he's got one count, but still had to break the rules. Hit him somehow, I don't know how. Possibly a headbutt. Pulls him out of the corner, form over the neck. Goes around Phineas. When uh, Phineas tried for some type of body slam, and he went over him. Gotta go back. Let's see, turns him around, kick, pulls him down. Bulldog like. Well, not really bulldog. He pulled him down, his head and his face went to the mat. So it's like a variation of a bulldog. Top rope. Wow, that's maneuver Mickey James uses. Two. Three. Now it's even. Bulldog, no, Road Dog comes in from uh, the back. Irish whip, reversal by Thrasher, head toss. Wrist lock, tagged in Blackjack Bradshaw. Kick to the gut. Ooh, chop, X him up. Chop. Chop. Wrong side, Road Dog. <laughs> Ooh. Short <laughs> arm clothesline. Probably got that from Jake the Snake. Goes for his own version. This time he gets the gut rich power bomb. Probably taught to him by Terry Taylor 
who was actually, I don't think he was not a part of a company yet, rolled up by Bradshaw, Road Dog on Bradshaw. I think he got the three count, even though he kicked out. Bradshaw had got ta tapped by Road Dog, excuse me. So he had gotten rolled up, now he's out of there. So Thrasher is in there by himself. <laughs> it wasn't Road Dog who did it. <laughs> Reversal by Road Dog. Kick by Billy Gunn to the back. Knocks down Thrasher. Irish whip, reversal by Thrasher. He goes for the finish right here. Go for a version of the, uh, I forgot, no, whatever it was, he gets out of it with hip toss. Tag by Billy. The dog, I don't know what he's going for. Pump handle slam. Some up. Ooh. Reversal, leg drop. Hooks the leg. Two, three. They win the match for the team. He actually had to help. Billy actually had to help Road Dog up. Uh, there's something on the on the back of a of a sign and I'm still not I'm not sure what it was well isn't this a pretty picture they got upset with them for taking the belt off of Bret Hart the way they did. But one of the fans calls him a sellout on a sign. Boy, can't make up their minds, can they?
Sith? The interrogator became known as Kurgan later on. I don't know the other two guys, but uh, coming out in berets, no less than, supposed to be represent Canada or French people. Brian Adams uh, the uh, Harris brothers I don't know who the other guy with long hair is but he could be Brian Lee I want to know the same thing, Jerry. Right hand. Whoa, this man is big. One, two, three, four, five. He's about to go for the traditional atomic drop. Chains still standing. Kick to the gut. Right hand. Back to it. One, two, three, four, five. Throws him into the corner this time. Ooh, ooh, hit his forehead. Close line. Oh, not gonna do any good. Close line. Sidewalk slam. One, two, three.
double team. They're gonna need three men. You gotta triple team them. Because the Harris brothers are identical twins, I can't tell them apart. So one half of the Harris brothers is now the legal man for the OA. Tags in the norm. The, the jackal, I think, is one who was tagged in. Knee drop from the top rope. No effect. More than he knows. Drop doesn't work. Right hand. Right hand. Right hand. Irish whip coming up. Picks him up. Spinning side slam. One, two, three. Up an elbow to the face, knocked him down. Side headlock, but he gets thrown off. Misses the right hand. One, two, go. places with them. Back 
Neckbreaker. Looks like two go. Push whip. Some up. Ooh. That's actually. It's actually a move they. I think they used this when the titles in WCW. Kick out. Hit him on the back of the neck. Bulldog by the legal member. Looks like two kick. Uh, uh, save, excuse me. The legal DOA member of the Lairs Brothers comes back in there. Whip into the corner. Ooh, clothesline. Whoa. So much force behind that. They fell. Literally fell to the ground. Yeah, vertical suplex. Go for some type of, uh... Yes, hmm? head scissors. Um, that could be... Legal tag, that's how Billy Gunn and Road Dog wanted for their team. It was by that. Goes for a sidewalk slam. Ooh. <clears throat> Probably is one good move. Two, three. Obviously, <clears throat> this jerk is supposed to be some type of cult leader. So I have to mute this. If I could find the remote. <clears throat> uh, 
Irake took uh, the interrogator. See if he can. Only person that could possibly power bomb, no, body slam the interrogator, later on known as Kurgan, would be Kevin Nash or the Giant. Big Show, whatever you want to call him. Kick into the gut. Right hand. <coughs> hmm. Irish whip, reversal. I'm not sure what he's going for. Uh, tells the world slam. Looks like two, three. Kurgan. Gonna win this by the sidewalk slam. One, looks like two, three. That was a great match. A lot of storytelling, a lot of uh, a lot of great impactful moves, a lot of um, what was interesting was how um, okay, I believe one ha one of the. Uh, Harris brothers, I think the because they're identical twins. I think the twin that got knocked that rolled out of the ring. I think he could have suffered. I think he could have had his bell rung. So that's why when his brother saw that, he got in there himself. So that was an even more of an interesting dynamic to the match. We tend to forget how dangerous this is we tend to forget how not everything we see on everything we see is planned Stop right here, because I like for these to be more than one part. I'll stop right here, and hope you all listen to this to the end. And the other videos. Thank you, and goodbye.